you might be looking at it from. You might see different things, but it yet would remain a single a single coin. There's lots of ways to think about that. The coin, think about even currency in the United States. Both sides of the coin are one coin, but both, both sides are different. They're not the same. And so if we held up a coin, one side facing you, one side facing me, I would swear that my side of the coin, that the coin is to be described in a certain way because I'd only be able to see this side of it. On from your side, you would swear truthfully that the side that you're observing would look another way because it would be different. Well, the idea there of the saying is just that it's accepting or kind of speaking to the idea that you can see things, the same thing, from more than one perspective. And when you think about the mission of the apostle Paul, his primary mission was to bring honor and glory to the Lord. He had a mission to grow in his own faith, to grow in grace. But as it related to other people that he came into contact with, Paul's primary mission or desire was that other believers would grow in their spiritual understanding and that they would have spiritual well-being. That's what he was concerned about. So when he came to unbelievers, his mission was to introduce them to the message, the life-saving message of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, how simple the gospel is, how God has done everything, God has made a way. You accept by faith what God has graciously provided to you as a free gift. You don't improve on it. You don't add to it. You just put your trust in What Jesus Christ has already accomplished as he died, was buried, and rose again for you. As he went to Calvary for you. As he paid the debt of all of your sins so that there's nothing left for you to pay. There's nothing left for you to do. The question isn't, what will I do? The question is, what has already been done for me? The question isn't, what can I do for God? The question is, will I accept what Jesus Christ has already done for me? And that's the essential message of the gospel in a nutshell. That man had a problem. I was actually uh, teaching at a youth retreat yesterday. And I was just mentioning that when you think about giving the gospel, there's sometimes you can complicate it, but it's not really that complicated. There's lots of ways that you could conceptualize the gospel. You might say, man has a need. You have to explain that need to man. How did God meet man's need? have to explain that aspect of it. How do you get a hold of this? How do you respond to this? So maybe those are the three critical components of the gospel, but you could get it, go about it in a lot of different ways. I'm a friend, I'm going to start by sharing the bad news with you, and then I'm going to share the good news of how God made a way, a solution to the predicament that you were in. But I came across a bracelet recently. I bought a hat recently, and they sent with it a bracelet that says Jesus saves on it. So I've been wearing this bracelet, Jesus Saves. But I was thinking about bracelets that might help be conversation starters that we could give out as prizes at VBS or camp or something like that. And I came across this particular bracelet that has four circles on it with four symbols in each of the circles. And they're just small circles on a small bracelet like this, uh, rubber. And the four were this. And I asked the kids, if you had this on with this maybe help start a conversation, someone would say, what are those symbols about that are on your, on your wrist? And they said, well, maybe. I said, well, just see, without even studying how to use this tool, see if you can tell me what each one of them stands for in terms of the conversation you could have with somebody. Well, the first one is a circle with a heart in it. Think of that for a second. 
Most kids didn't have any problem with that. They came right to the verse they're most familiar with, right? For God so loved the world. God loves you. It's that simple. God loves you. Second symbol, though, was a division sign. You know, line with two dots about it, if you haven't done math in a while. Little line, dot, dot. <laughs> kids are a little bit more familiar with it, though they, some of them were struggling with, if we had two apples in this hand and two apples in this hand, and we put them, no. So, they were joking, but some of us are serious when I try to calculate a tip sometimes. In any event, it's a division symbol. So, what would that, how would that help your conversation, right? Are you thinking about that? Sin divides, sin separates. So, God loves you, but there's this problem, right? Sin is separating you from God because God is holy, but all men are sinful. There's no exceptions to that. You know, the next symbol was, it was a little cross inside of that circle. So we're into the next part of the, the message, right? God bridges that divide that was caused by your sin. So if you imagine a cliff on this side, a cliff on this side, you're here, God's here, there's a divide between you. The cross is what spans that divide ultimately. And there's lots of things you could say, right? As you explain that part about how Jesus made a way where there was no way, where you were facing eternity, separated or divided from God because of your sin, even though God was loving. But God, because of God's holiness, there was that divide. So God broke down that barrier. He spanned that divide with the death of his son. And then the last one was a, a question mark in the circle. How will you respond? How will you respond to that message? What do you think? Is that... Is that complicated? Is that, is that something that maybe you'll even use in the future? I don't know. Maybe we'll get a whole bunch of bracelets. We'll, we'll all have them. All the cool kids will have them. I tease, but you sometimes think about what are you wearing that could possibly start a conversation about the gospel? I'm not saying you should. I'm not, I'm not making any kind of dogmatic statements here. I'm just saying what a neat idea. And, uh, well, I won't go into more about it, but that was something that we talked about there at the retreat. And so, so Paul, of course, when he came to people, he'd want to first know, are you saved? But then if he determined that they understood that message of hope that's found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then he would want them, he would be most interested in their spiritual growth and their spiritual well-being. So if he wants believers to be doing well spiritually or growing in their faith or having spiritual growth in their life, then the realization of that desire or that outcome, it could be viewed in two different ways and Paul views it in two different ways back to our two sides of the same coin. The first is it involves avoiding things that are detrimental. If you want to have spiritual growth or you want to be doing well spiritually, it's going to involve avoiding things that are detrimental. Now, the other side of that same coin, though, is it's going to involve embracing things that are beneficial. So avoiding things that are detrimental, embracing things that are beneficial, none of which is going to be empowered by you. But are you going to have a desire to say, Lord, help me to get to a place in my faith where I learn to avoid 
the things that have been holding me back or are detrimental, make changes in my patterns, my behavior, my life, not through my own strength, not in a mechanical way, but as led by your spirit, let you make some changes in my life so that these things that have been interfering with my spiritual growth and my spiritual well-being help to push them off to the side. There's a song I heard years back that said, Oh Lord, keep me in the moment. Help me live with my eyes wide open. Show me what it is that you have for me. Oh Lord, show me what matters. But then the next line said, throw away what I'm chasing after because I don't want to miss what you have for me. A part of it involves, Lord, show me the things that need to be thrown away that are unhelpful and detrimental to my life. And then the other side of it again is embracing the things that are beneficial? Do I have a desire to draw nearer to the Lord, pursue the things that are lovely, speak about the things that are lovely, meditate about the things that are lovely? Is that my heart's desire? Now, am I going to do that in my own strength successfully either? No, but is that going to be my prayer? Lord, get my eyes off of myself and my circumstances so that my eyes are looking to you, that my focus is on you. I'm fixated on the author and finisher of my faith so that as you get a hold of my thinking, you can make it possible for me to be embracing and making good habits but chasing after things that will help and will be beneficial to my life. So one of these sides of the coin is focused on embracing the positive and the other is focused on avoiding the negative so there's kind of the both sides of it the positive and negative side of it and so Paul in this prayer that we're going to look at today he illustrates prayers that are being offered from both perspectives as he sees that for them to be spiritually successful he's praying that they could avoid the things that would be detrimental and then he on the heels of that he's praying that they could embrace the things that would be benefits. So if you're new here or you haven't been here in a bit, we're going through this series on the Apostle Paul's prayer. And this particular prayer just happens to offer prayers from both perspectives, kind of tackling the two sides of the same coin. So turn, if you haven't, to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Lord willing, we're going to look at these verses here, 7 through 14 here this morning. As a few of you are still turning there, just note that this is how Paul ends this letter to the Corinthian believers. So this is kind of the conclusion of the letter. Let's just read the whole thing together. It's a decent amount of material, but let's just look at it so we kind of get that big picture context reading it all at once. Paul says, Now I pray to God in verse 7 that you... Do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may be, seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. 
be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Well, let's dive into this. There's plenty here. We'll be past 1130 if we don't make a little progress here. 2 Corinthians 13, 7, we'll start here. Some of this is fairly complicated and hard to understand and in, in a sense is challenging in that way, but we'll do our best to just break this down. 2 Corinthians 13, 7, now I pray to God that you do no evil. And we'll just start with that. I pray to God that you do no evil. See, Paul begins his prayer by addressing the negative or the detrimental side of things, saying, I'm praying that you would avoid the negative, avoid the detrimental. As my primary concern, again, is for your spiritual growth and your spiritual well-being, one part of that is going to involve avoiding these things that would hold you back or would be detrimental to your success. So there are many specific detrimental things that Paul could pray about. Maybe think about that for a second even in, in your own mind, some detrimental things in your life. You're like, I don't have to think long. Several things should come to mind, right? If you're being honest, if you want to have a dose of honesty this morning, you're going to say, there are some things holding me back. There are some things in my life that have been detrimental to my spiritual well-being. Them, well-being. Some of them self-imposed, you know, some of them self-created. Some of them just challenges and trials that are part of my circumstances in life. As some of them, though are purely internal, motiv- motivated by my flesh or produced by my flesh, certain hang-ups that I just have struggled with, with for many years and haven't been able to have sustained victory over it because I haven't been able to trust the Lord enough with it, give it, enough to, give it to Him enough that I would allow Him to give me more lasting victory. Now, maybe you thought of some things, but my point is Paul could have been very specific here. But instead... He chose to keep his prayer quite general and universally applicable so that you could fill in the blank. You could put in your own thing. So he says, I pray to God that you do no evil. Now, most translations replace evil with wrong. I pray to God that you do no wrong. You don't do things that are inappropriate or unacceptable or incompatible with what God says is right. I mean, the opposite of wrong is right. God is the one who sets the standards for what is right. Can we say that again to ourselves? God is the one who sets the standards of what is right. You don't make your own truth. The world doesn't just make its own truth, though they say that. The only source of what is right is God himself. He is the only source of righteousness. And so our truth doesn't come from what the news says, what the politicians say, what people say is right. The truth comes from what God says is right. And that's why you ought to familiarize yourself with what God says is right. And so, in any event, I pray to God that you would do no wrong. Now, he could have said, I pray to God that you do what is right. But he takes it from the negative, from the detrimental side here. And so, the term simply refers to any morally objectionable behavior. Now, morally from what standard, though? From God's standard, as defined by God's truth, not from 
Not from Paul's perspective, not from Paul's standards, not from their standards, not from the community standards, from what God says the standard is. And so, Paul lived in a day where society had set standards quite low. These believers in Corinth lived in a place where society had set moral standards quite low. Did that mean that those were the standards? No, it meant that they were flawed or had deviated from God's standards and adopted standards that were incompatible with what he says is right. So again, the focus here is coming from God's perspective. Here's a verse that Paul says in Romans 12, 9b. He says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. So I pray that you do no wrong or do no evil. That's going to come from recognizing that evil can never be beneficial to me. Partaking in what is wrong, what God says is not right, could never benefit me. The opposite ought to be true that I'm hating what is evil because God hates what is evil. And I'm depending on Him to give me victory over what is wrong in my life so He can show me even the hidden faults within me. Listen to the message on Psalm 19 from last Wednesday if you didn't get around to it. David has to pray that. Before he can pray that the words of his lips or the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart would be acceptable in God's sight, he had to first say, Lord, make me aware of the hidden faults in me, the things that I'm not even aware of. Do you see how there's no room for pride in the faith walk? Uh, Self-dependence, an independent attitude? We're so screwed up, we don't even know what's wrong with us. We don't even know the depths of the depravity that we're dealing with. The heart is deceitful above all things and not, not a tiny bit wicked, desperately wicked. How does that verse end though? Who can know it? You can't even be responsible for an effective self-inventory apart from God revealing to you some of the things He wants to change about you. So the moment you get a little bit of a strut going, (laughs) a little cock on the walk, isn't God lucky to have me? (laughs) Set it aside. See it for what it is. It's deception. I I have to have humility. I have to be made small so that he can lift me up. As Paul said in his prayer that we covered not long ago, it's when I'm weak that I can be strong. I have to see I'm nothing without him. Without him I lose my way so I cling to what is good. Because I see that's the only source of safety or victory. I've given up completely on myself. Read any example you want basically in the Bible and it's trying to show men that apart from God, man is an abject failure. I can, you can do nothing without me. Come to the end of yourself so that you can see how much you need me to pick you up. I hope you see that. So then Paul contrasts what should be avoided with what is desired instead. So he moves on. 
So he starts off though on the negative side of it, the detrimental side of it, where he's saying, now I pray to God that you would do no wrong or do no evil. And the contrast with that is that but, but that instead you should do what is honorable. Now, don't, I'm not skipping, not that we should appear approved, that that's just a break in, in the sentence though. The, the thought is, I pray that you would, to God, that you do no evil, but that you should do what is honorable. That's the thought. That's the main thought. The other stuff is, is speaking to or qualifying that. And so we, that's why I jumped to that you should do what is honorable. So he contrasts these two things. Avoiding this, avoiding what is detrimental, and instead that you should do what is positive or honorable, that you should do what is honorable. Now, the word honorable there refers to morally good, beautiful, excellent, or admirable. So we had morally objectionable behavior with evil. Now we have morally good, beautiful, excellent, and admirable. Uh, What a prayer, huh? Insert the word beautiful in there. I pray to God that you should do what is beautiful. Because I pray to God, it describes both that you should do no evil and that you should do what is honorable. So I pray to God that you should do what is beautiful, that is lovely, that is acceptable in thy sight, O God. That's the prayer there. Now again, remember, do what is beautiful and good and admirable and excellent as defined by what? God's truth, as defined by God's truth. It represents the natural reverse of doing no wrong. By avoiding the one, you automatically accomplish the other. You could look at it from both perspectives. If if you are doing what is honorable, then you're not doing what is evil. Not at the same time. If you're walking by faith, you're not at the same time walking by sight. You can't be leaning on your own understanding and at the same time trusting the Lord with all your heart. There's, there's these choices we have to make in every moment of every day. Which one will we choose? But if you're doing If you're avoiding the one, then you're accomplishing the other. Doing what is right is a byproduct of godly thinking. And here's a couple of verses that bring this out. Again, let me say that again. Doing what is right is a byproduct of godly thinking. So it starts with your thinking. The battle is for your mind. So Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true... Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is anything virtuous or if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Where's your mind at? Where should it be at? These things. Why are you meditating on all the things that can't possibly fuel your soul or encourage you? Do you have any control of those things anyway? Can you, can you, through diligence of thought, change those things? Don't you worship the one who's in control, though? Isn't he capable of all things? So he says, instead of focusing on the filth of the world around you, focus on these things. I didn't make this up. This is what God says to do. You know what? You'll have a little bit of a spiritual bounce in your step when this is true. I guarantee you won't when you're looking at the darkness and the perversion of the world around you. 
or looking at the perversion of your flesh inside of you, that's not going to encourage you, lift you up at all. Turn to the very next verse. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. So you're saying there's an action component to this? Yes, but where did it start? With a mental component. If your mind isn't on the right things, if you're not tapped into the right power source, if you're not doing this through the power of the Spirit of God, you'll not do anything that could bring God glory. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. But while you're abiding in the vine, and God's working in and through you, with me, you can do anything. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. You see how simple it is? These do. What things? Do the things that I taught you. Meaning, there were specific applications to what God wants in our lives. You're saying that God built us for a purpose, that that involves doing right things or things that would bring glory to Him? Yes. As a focus? No. As a byproduct of enjoying life with Him, being in fellowship with Him, walking by means of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. Walk by means are under the influence of the Spirit, and you will not what? Fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Get the order right. If you put the cart before the horse, you got a real problem. You'll never experience success because you can't do this, but God can do this in and through you. Now, what is your motivation as you think about do? I pray to God that you should do what is honorable. What is your motivation for serving the Lord? Well, it should be a desire to want to live to lift Him up. If He's the one who's worthy and you alone are worthy, He's the only one who deserves the preeminence. We naturally want the preeminence, but the only one who deserves it is Christ. If He deserves the preeminence, then our lives, and we see what He's done for us, we see His great love for us, we respond to His love, we love Him because He first loved us. The love of Christ motivates, compels me. It serves as a motivation to want to live for the one who loved me and gave Himself for me. So as I'm responding to His love, I should have a desire to serve Him. Not because I have to, because what else would I want to do if I see how great and awesome He is and how much He's done for me? Why wouldn't I want to spend my life singing His praises? Why is the natural tendency to forget about how wonderful He is, forget about all that He's done for me and continues to do for me and has promised to do for me in the future and to always fall into the default of singing my own praises? Why is that? Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's why. Some of you are like, well, I'm not singing my own praises, but I'm singing someone else's praises. Sometimes you'll sing the praises of other human beings too. Just listen to what you talk about. Listen to who you promote. Listen to who you lift up and glorify. Now, does that mean there's never a place to say, hey, this person's doing a good job with this, that, or the other thing? Sure. If you're consistently talking about people and what they've done and accomplished, though, are you missing the boat? If you're forgetting that the one you're supposed to be lifting up first and foremost is Christ and Him crucified? So that's always a take pause, think about it, 
where am I really at here, Lord? Adjust my thinking. Get my focus on heavenly things, eternal things, things that will last. My citizenship is in heaven. Remind me of these things, Lord. I'm a stranger. I'm a pilgrim. I'm just passing through. I'm not setting down my roots here as you're jackhammering out new foundations. <laughs> you know, don't, get, don't get too attached to this world. <laughs> and we're putting rebar in, concrete trucks backing up. God's like, don't do that. This is your temporary home. You don't belong here. You're an alien, a foreigner. Don't fit in. Remind my kids, but I... But the truth is I'm reminding myself when I drop them off to events, I tell them, you're not here to fit in. You're here to be a light for Jesus. That's your mission. We desperately just want to fit in. Anyway, here's a verse about our motivation. And whatever you do, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, do it heartily. With who in mind? Other people's praise? Other people's approval? No, as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. We don't serve self. We're not to serve self. Now what's the power source in all this? I have spoke about it a little bit already, but obviously we know that we're not going to be able to accomplish a life that is honorable. That we're doing things that are honorable to the Lord apart from Him making that possible in and through us. Philippians 2.13 says that the Holy Spirit is the power source for Christian living. It is God who works in you, both to will and to do. So his prayer here, Paul's prayer here, is that you, my prayer, I pray to God that you should do what is honorable. To do His good pleasure involves God working in and through you. Again, without me, you can do nothing. Now, Paul goes on to explain his pure motives in praying for this outcome. We'll come back to the rest of the verse here. These parts that kind of describe or they're, these clauses that don't, they add to the main point, but they, they kind of stand off separate in a sense here. Because the main idea is, I pray to God that you should do no evil, but that you should do what is honorable. But now what does he mean by this phrase, not that we should appear Approve. So Paul wants to tell them, he, what he's saying is, my motives in praying this for you, they're pure. So when you look at this phrase, not that we should appear approved, the idea is we don't pray this just to prove or show the effectiveness of our ministry. I'm not praying that you should do no evil just so that I could show that I've been effective in impacting you that my ministry has been effective and so that I can say, and look at exhibit A. I, I tried to encourage them and I pointed them to the Lord and look how great they're doing. And all, this is all about me. That's all Paul's saying here. I'm, I'm not praying this so that I could somehow be lifted up. I'm praying it with pure motives. Paul is motivated by a concern for believers, not his own reputation. You can see a glimpse of this in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, as to what Paul's pure motives are. He talks about the things that he's worried about or concerned about. And he says this, besides the other things, meaning all of this persecution that I'm facing, he, he's telling them about the things that are trials in his life. He says, besides those things which are greater than anything we're facing, he says, what is 
concerning to him is this. What comes upon me daily, what is concerning me daily is my deep concern for all the churches. My deep concern for all the churches. That's his motive. Not to be glorified or lifted up by the success that they might have. Now, does that mean he doesn't want them to be successful? No, he wants them to thrive in their faith. His primary objective is for their spiritual well-being and their spiritual growth, but not for his own glory. And that's all that's, mean, that's meant here with this phrase, not that we should appear approved. And then you see this other phrase, though we seem disqualified. And an alternate translation of that is, even if it makes it look like we have failed to demonstrate our authority. Okay, because the idea here is, this is a corrective letter. If you would respond to the letter, then I wouldn't have to come in person and set things straight in a, with, with more of a sharpness of tone. You saw that, we see that in verse 10, we'll see that again. Uh, I, I won't have to speak sharply to you and really come down on you because you'll have responded to this letter that was intended to correct. Now, the thing though is that people were accusing Paul of being weak because he wasn't very authoritative. He didn't try to flex his muscle all the time and demonstrate his apostolic authority. And so he's saying, I'm happy to seem weak and to avoid that if you would just respond to this prayer that I have for you, which is that you would avoid doing what is wrong and you would instead do the things that are good or lovely. Even though that's going to have a detrimental effect on some of my critics' view of me. It's going to keep, it's going to embolden them to keep criticizing me with the same things they've been criticizing me for, but I'm not concerned about it. So the idea here really is, if these believers respond to Paul's written exhortations, he will have no opportunity to prove his apostolic authority through some external display of apostolic power when he returns to Corinth, which was exactly what the false teachers were attacking him about, saying he was weak. So that's the idea here. Paul's prayer was for the Corinthians' success, even if it meant that people might consider him to be a failure. Now that's a challenging verse, but we move on to verse 8 here. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Again, speaking to motives here. So the word for here indicates a statement of explanation for what was just said. The idea is our responsibility is never to oppose the truth, but always to stand for the truth. My focus is on your spiritual well-being, regardless of what that might do in terms of impact to me personally. That's my primary responsibility. I don't care about the fallout. Now, can you say that? I want what's right. I want to lift the Lord up and I don't care about what fallout that might have in my personal life. Paul desired to serve the Lord regardless of personal expense or cost. And believers should be controlled by the truth instead of being preoccupied with themselves and their reputation and what other people think about them. Now, is that easy to do? Who's got that figured out? I'm glad that there was no one brave enough to raise their hand. We're a work in progress, right? Living for Christ means not caring about what the world has to say about those things. I want you to be successful regardless of how that might appear in terms of my reputation. Now verse 9, For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. 
If your strength means that we appear weak, we're happy for that. And this we also pray that you may be made complete. So we're continuing on with some of the things that Paul is praying for. Now, this is obviously on the positive side of the column too. We're glad for this though. And so verse 9 is sort of a way to complete this thought that he's been on here for these last now three verses. He's kind of, it's, it's a conclusion to this line of thought or a summary statement. We're glad when we are weak and you are strong. If the Corinthians were strong in Christ, there would be no occasion for him to use apostolic authority or speak harshly to them. He would be able to come to them in the weakness of a gentle spirit, which he speaks about in earlier in his letters, First and Second Corinthians. He says, that's my desire is to come to you in a gentle spirit even if that means a perception of weakness. We are glad to seem weak if you are actually strong in your faith. A a focus on people. The priority is other people's well-being, not myself. You see the sacrificial and heavenly mindset of Paul in this? Effectively saying my only concern is your spiritual state regardless of personal costs. And it, it reminds me of this verse that Paul has in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, one chapter earlier, verse 15. This is Paul's mindset. Now, is this your mindset? Is this my mindset? Not by nature. Does the Spirit want to give us this kind of a sacrificial and selfless mindset? Where Paul is saying, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I will watch the hourglass of my substance or the essence of my life, the, the things that I hold dear, I will watch that hourglass get drained down to nothing if it means your growth, your well-being, your thriving in your faith. My concern is for your souls. That's why when he comes to town, his focus isn't on first and foremost, it's not on changing behavior. It's on changing thinking. It's on introducing people to the one who can give life he then moves on to exhort about the kinds of practices and behaviors that are consistent with what God says is right. But only after he introduces them to their position in Christ, their power source for Christian living. Then he gets to the nuts and bolts about practical Christian living. But his concern is for their souls. And is that our concern? As you look at people in your life, are you concerned for their soul first and foremost? You know, one definition of missionary is somebody who never gets used to the sound of Christless feet marching off into an eternity apart from Him. Never gets used to that thud of those feet that are marching off into an eternity spent apart from Christ. But let's be honest for a second about it. As you go through life and the busyness of life, the cares of this world start to take over. Is it easy to start to see people as just flashing, flashing by? Is it easy to start to see them like you're driving down the highway? I was on Highway 4 yesterday coming home from that retreat. You know what's on Highway 4? A lot of trees. You know what else is on Highway 4? A lot of deer. A lot of deer. You know what else is on Highway 4? One St. Louis County Sheriff. I didn't get pulled over. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I, was, I was in a spiritual moment, I guess. 
pray for me. I do have a tendency to speed. You can pray for me on that. I just happened to be following somebody driving really slow. I had a car full of kids. Some of them weren't my own. That causes me to drive a little better. In any event, here comes one sheriff. So, Not that common, actually. Many of you know that. Not that common out there. But you could be driving up and down that highway back and forth. You see those trees whizzing by. Pretty soon that's how we start to see the world whizzing by, people whizzing by us. In fact, Pastor Leonard Radke used that exact analogy with my dad when they were driving to Duluth for a Bible study once on the drive home. He said, just be careful. Know that you can start to see people like these trees on the side of the highway where you looked at them a little bit for the first few miles and pretty soon you just kind of get tunnel vision, look down the highway and you don't, they're there but you're driving past them and you don't even see them. Pretty good, huh? Something that we could be reminded of and that's Paul's attitude. I would I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Hopefully that could be your attitude and mine. Now, next Paul is going to identify an additional prayer he has for their spiritual well-being. You see this with this positive approach continues with the positive angle. He says, we pray that you may be complete. Now, just a quick thing on we Paul's with other people. He's praying with other people. He's always ministering with other people. Paul isn't just doing his own thing. I keep saying that. Sometimes, though, I think I grew up with this idea the Apostle Paul was kind of doing his own thing. He's not. He's with other believers, ministering with other believers as a team. He says, we pray that you may be complete. Now, complete refers to maturity or restoration or being made fit for some purpose. Now, in the context here, And this word here isn't your typical word that's translated complete. There's other places in the Bible where the prayer is that believers would become complete. There the focus usually is more on the maturity side of it. But in fact, this is the only time this underlying Greek word is even used in the New Testament. And the focus here is probably more on restoration. Paul's prayer was for the restoration of the Corinthians to spiritual strength because they'd been struggling in their faith. So we pray that you may be restored, that you may be restored to strength. That was ultimately the purpose behind the corrective letter of 1 Corinthians, which the majority of the believers there had apparently favorably responded to. So in 2 Corinthians, he's able to say, I'm so glad that so many of you responded to the first letter I, I wrote that had that corrective, really strong corrective quality to it. So that's the idea of this prayer is that we pray that you may become fit for some purpose, restored or spiritually mature. That's a prayer we should have for ourselves and for others. Now, verse 10, he goes on, Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction, for edification and not for destruction. So Paul begins to wind down his letter by summarizing why he wrote it. I'm hoping that by writing this in advance, I won't need to rebuke you when I do come because I'll find things are going well or things are in order. Paul was giving the Corinthians time to respond to his warnings appropriately. And so as you think about the end of verse 10 here, although correction is sometimes needed, The ultimate objective in ministry is what? It's to build up and strengthen. 
to build up and strengthen. That's what the word edification means there, to build up and strengthen, not to tear down. It's not intended to be negative. Even correction is intended to be what? Useful, positive, beneficial, not hurtful or harmful. So even when you come to a place where, you know, correction is needed, how are you going to take that? Are you going to take that from the Lord, take it as of the Lord if other people are involved in it? Or are you going to double down? Are you going to go from a posture of, you know, I'm going to do my own thing to now in, in the face of correction? Arms crossed, lips pursed, stubborn as stubborn could be. None of you would naturally do that, right? God says, don't do that. See correction as a positive thing. Let it build you up. Let it restore you. Don't double down on this. Doubling down is never the solution to being confronted with things that are out of whack in our lives. Now verse 11 says, finally, so here we have the true sort of conclusion of the letter. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. What a, what a nice prayer slash farewell to these believers. He uses familial terms to remind them of their shared bond in Christ. I love that he uses that word brethren. Finally, brethren, brothers and sisters. That's why you hear some preachers from the day, maybe there's still some today that are, are starting their sermons and their things with, brothers and sisters, we have gathered here today. I'm going to start that maybe. Brothers and sisters. In that exact voice too. The whole message, the whole message is going to be in that voice. It's familial. I'm, I'm with you. I'm close to you. You mean a lot to me. We're joined together. We're supposed to be woven and knit together. That's, that's the idea. So he says, be joyful. That, and he says, farewell. That word actually doesn't mean goodbye. It means be joyful. And it, now think about goodbye. Be joyful in the departure. So be joyful. Then he says, be restored. That's what the phrase become complete means. Be restored. We just covered that. Be mature. Grow. Then he says, be, be encouraged. That's what he, be of good comfort. Be encouraged. And he says, be of one mind and live in peace. Just live in harmony. Live in agreement. Live with peace. Don't be at each other's throats. Don't be nitpicking each other. Don't be holding on to things. Keep short accounts. Forget. Move on. Don't let bitterness, don't let a seed of bitterness grow. Forgive one another, even as Christ has forgiven you. Love one another. That's the opposite. Harmony is the opposite. I mean, harmony and peace are the opposite of discord and grudges and bitterness and resentment. Let that, let go of those things. 
I can't. I just can't. You know, you might be being honest there. You can't, maybe. But God can. Isn't He wonderful? There's nothing He cannot do. Do you believe that? Are you praying in faith? Do you trust Him to be able to make those changes in your life? And then this last phrase, and the God of love and peace be with you. Paul wants them to remember this key truth as they strive for these outcomes. What were the outcomes again? My prayer for you is that you would do nothing wrong, not do wrong things or evil things, but that in contrast you would do what is honorable. Are you going to remember that? Are you going to remember that as you're going about wanting to grow in your faith, to become more mature in your faith? See, love and peace are gifts that God gives. It's the, it's the God who imparts love and peace is another way to, to think of this. And the God who imparts love and peace will be with you. That's the kind of God you have. The God who imparts love and peace. Isn't that a nice, encouraging way to think about your God? See, Paul highlights the divine resources that will enable these things to be true. You're not going to do this on your own. But the God who imparts love and peace will be with you. Remember that. You can depend on Him. You can trust in Him to make that true in your life. Now we have verse 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So we're going to stand up. No, we're not going to stand up. <laughs> not going to stand up. Oh, man. If you've got kids, the first time I came across this, I have memories of coming across this verse as a kid. I'm like, these are the things that just, you a little, you know, imagine a little, a little boy just giggling about this kind of thing. Greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> there were different customs in those days. So what we're really saying is, greet one another with the appropriate custom of the day. <laughs> so here that would be a handshake or perhaps a hug. Um, kissing, do that on your own time. <laughs> Next verse, all the saints greet you. All of God's people here, and this is somewhere in Macedonia that Paul's writing this, they send you their greetings. That's the kind of spirit we should have towards other believers in other places. I love being able to be down at Duluth Bible Church yesterday with the roughly 50 kids that were there and the call it 20 or so, adults that were there helping. What a great time. Just to be reminded that we're a part of something much bigger than just the local expression of the universal church. The, 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 the local expression of the universal church is absolutely critical. That's God's design. Be a part of that. Don't forsake that. See the value in that. Don't try to do this on your own. But, but this local expression is a part of something much, much bigger. And there's believers calling on the name of, of the Lord everywhere. Every country, every place. And that should give you peace or comfort to know that. Or encouragement. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. Verse 14, our last verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So these are given as encouraging statements of positional fact. Encouraging statements of positional fact. The final greeting here mentions all three persons of the Trinity. Do you note that? You see that? There's part of the support for a Trinitarian view of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all mentioned here together. 
So communion refers to fellowship with God and others, which the Holy Spirit enables, in case that word kind of throws you off a little bit. That's what that's referring to. These believers could begin to imitate in their congregation the grace, love, and fellowship that the Godhead already enjoyed. So this is an example. It's like, take this and allow this to become true in your congregation. Let this be become true in, in you. So if it's with you and it's given to you as an example, this could be true in your church too. That the grace, the love, and the fellowship that the Godhead represents here in this example, that's something you can enjoy too. You see, the grace of Christ, it banishes selfishness and self-seeking as we look at the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was our example of selflessness. The love of God eliminates jealousy, anger, bitterness, resentment, the kinds of things that tear away criticism, complaining, the things that tear away at the health of a church, it eliminates that as you think about the love of God. If He loved us like that, couldn't we love one another that way? Couldn't we be generous with people? Couldn't we be forgiving and compassionate with people? Couldn't we let go of things as it relates to people? So that's the second aspect of it. And then the fellowship, the communion there, the fellowship by the Spirit, it leaves no room for quarreling, cliques, factions within the church, Because it should promote fellowship with all of the brethren with one another. Even those that you don't have that much in common with on a human plane. Do you have enough in common with them if you have a common Savior? Yes, you do. Do we forget that at times? Yes, we do. Does it matter if you can find one other thing to agree about? Nope. What you have in Christ is more than enough in common. Full stop, period. There's nothing more to it than that. And that's how God wants us to see things. We wouldn't have that clickiness and groups that don't include others. Quarreling, we wouldn't have that. Because the thing we have would be bigger than the things we don't have in common. Now, amen just means let it be so. So, we've talked about two sides of the same coin here. God, like Paul's, primary, God's, like Paul's, primary concern for you is your spiritual growth and your spiritual well-being. And Paul wanted to pray about this from both sides of the coin. Because spiritual growth involves learning to avoid things that are detrimental, but it also, again, we saw, involved embracing things that are beneficial. Now, what was the caveat to all that? All by God's grace, all by trusting Him, all by the power of His Spirit, that we would avoid the things that are detrimental and embrace the things that are beneficial. So, may we remember to pray for growth in ourselves, growth in others, as it relates to both sides of that. Sometimes when you're thinking about yourself, the prayer is going to have to be, Lord, help me to avoid this thing that's been detrimental. Sometimes the prayer for self is going to be, Lord, help me to embrace these things that would be helpful or beneficial. When, when it's for our spouse, our children, fellow believers, sometimes the prayer is going to be, help them, give them victory over this thing that has been detrimental in their life. Sometimes the prayer for them is going to be, Lord, help them to embrace the things that would be positive in their life. And so Paul gives us an example of how our prayers can be shaped as coming from either perspective, that positive or negative perspective, as it relates to our prayer life and the prayers that we offer to God, on, again, behalf of ourselves and others. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for this time that we can spend fellowshipping with one another. We thank you for this food that you've provided that we're going to be able to enjoy 
together. Pray that this fellowship would be sweet, that it would be encouraging and uplifting. Thank you again for all the hands that prepared the food that we're about to eat. Pray that you would undertake to, again, make it a very profitable time where you take center stage and that you get all the glory and the focus remains on you. Pray that that could be true in our lives individually, that could be true corporately of this church, that we would be exalting you, putting the spotlight on you, and living to lift you up, promoting you and putting you in your proper place of preeminence. Thank you again for your love and this time that we're going to be able to spend together. In Jesus' name, amen.